Well, guys, welcome tonight. Great evening, Bible study. I think Oliver and the others had some uh, counseling that ran over through the afternoon, so he was a bit occupied, so no song prepared for the evening. We'll, we'll be okay. We'll make do. I'm going to pray, then we're going to jump into our study on biblical leadership and picking up where we left off from last time. So let's uh, dive in. Join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Great God, we praise you this evening. Another opportunity to gather with your people, study your word, study biblical leadership, and we know how vital leadership is to the church. Of course, we derive everything from our head. Christ, he is our supreme leader, the one from whom all of our blessings flow, everything we need for life and godliness. But he has so chosen to use others and to raise up people in his church to, to share this load, to bring the, the vision of making disciples of all nations come to fruition. And we can be a part of that process. We can uh, enter into that, just the joy and the blessing of serving others and even leading in your church. So we pray you, you equip us, you enable us as we study more of these qualities of leadership. You show us the way, show us what that looks like, that we would just be effective and faithful in serving you. We bless our time tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you may not care, but football season is upon us again. There's new talks of record-setting contracts and deals where for the NFL, some of these players are getting now tens of millions and even over $100 million contracts. Pretty extreme. And with all these players being so good, making so much money, it kind of makes you wonder, like, do they, do they really need coaches? Aren't they beyond coaching at that point? If they're so good and worth so much money, why do teams need to waste this money on coaches? And the answer comes in the fact that football is a team sport. You've got 11 guys on offense, 11 guys on defense, plus special teams. And, but the thing is that all those different guys on both sides have to work together really as one if they're going to win. It's a team sport. You win as a team. You lose as a team. No game is ever really decided by a single player. They've all got to work together. And it's that team dynamic that requires coaching. Every play, you've got 11 guys. They all have their individual jobs, but they have to do it together as a unit, understanding how it fits into the big picture. They need to be directed and orchestrated, and that's what coaches do. Also, a team like that is typically full of big personalities, and conflicts may erupt. And so coaches also have to be like peacemakers, making sure not only does their team play well, but that they also function well, live in harmony not fighting each other. The team has to be a team. They've got to get along and really be united if they're going to win. As the season goes on, adversity and hardship starts to pile up, and the cracks start to show. The team has to be united to make it through. The only way they will overcome the adversity is through their unity, and that's what coaches, part of what coaches do. So that's why coaches are needed for football teams and why they're also paid well. Most coaches themselves used to be players. They played football. Their body clock said, time's up. They still wanted to do something, so they entered the coaching side of things. But you know what? Not all players make for good coaches, right? In fact, most players probably wouldn't make for good coaches. Why not? Well, they don't have necessarily the qualities or the characteristics of a good coach or a leader. They have all the qualities of a player. That's what got them there. Athleticism, talent, commitment, competitive spirit, passion. And that's great. That's what makes them good players. 
That doesn't mean they're going to have some of the qualities that make for a good leader or a good coach. And that's a separate set of qualities. Like leadership, desire, vision, inspiration, communication, organization. Some players, for example, they can play really well, but they can't communicate to others what they need to do, what the team needs to do. And if you can't communicate, for example, probably not going to make for a good coach or leader. Now, I bring all this up because it forms a good parallel with the church and leadership in the church. In the church, we're all players, so to speak. We're all sheep. We're all on Team Jesus. We're all players here. And for that reason, we all have to display certain characteristics like love, joy, peace, patience, so on. That's for all of us. But this team needs coaches as well. And the Lord has ordained for some to rise up and be leaders over the church to help make sure this team functions well. It works together as a unit. It remains unified. These coaches are leaders. They're They're drawn from the pool of players. They all come from the pool of players. In fact, they still are players in a sense. But not everyone in the church is qualified or cut out to step up to leadership. And for this, they need to possess another set of characteristics or qualities that mark them as leaders. Now, morally, they need to meet a higher standard of Christian character and godliness. We've studied that, the character of the biblical leader. But even on top of this, we find there's a certain set of leadership qualities that make for an effective biblical leader, where you can lead being morally qualified, being doctrinally qualified, but these qualities are going to make you an effective leader. So starting last week, we've been setting what makes for a good coach in the church, so to speak, or an effective leader in the church, a good biblical leader. Like I said, some may be morally qualified and doctrinally qualified to lead, so they can lead. That doesn't mean they're automatically going to be a good leader. What makes them a good leader, an effective leader? That's why we're studying now some of these basic leadership qualities. We started into this last week, so it's a two-parter. Last week, we covered five of these key qualities of biblical leadership. Leader must be marked by grace marked by patience, marked by a genuine concern, marked by sacrifice, and marked by desire. And we're going to finish the study tonight by adding five more, five more key qualities of the biblical leader. So the qualities of biblical leadership, this is a part two. So we're going to pick up now and keep going on this list. Just go one by one and and explore some of these leadership qualities. So this would be number six, technically, marked by vision. Marked by vision. Now, I'm not talking about a prophetic vision here, like being a seer. But we're talking about the ability to see things, not for what is there or what they are per se, but what they could be. This is the ability to see clearly where people need to go, where they need to grow. This is a type of spiritual vision for sure. You could call it a spiritual foresight, a spiritual insight into what the church needs, where it needs to go, how to get there. Some people can just see that, and others can't. And for one, the the leader needs to see people, not just as they are, but also what they could be, dealing with people. If all you ever see is people just just where they're at with all their flaws, and that's all you ever bring up, you're just going to discourage people. 
But to encourage others, you can help them to, uh, as you see, where they can be. You can encourage them in, as you're dealing with someone with problems to communicate to them clearly where they need to go, how they can get there in their sanctification on an individual level or with the ministry, how it can grow. You know, the Pharisees, for example, they looked at a guy like Peter and they saw one thing only. This guy is just an uneducated fisherman. He's not worth the time. He's, he's a nobody. Jesus saw Peter dif- different. Now, at first, he was just an uneducated fisherman. But Christ also saw in him the heart of genuine faith through, through which, through whom, he could do quite a lot. You know, when Jesus called Peter and was going to make this huge investment in Peter, at the time, Peter on paper was nothing. He was not a preacher, not a prophet, not a leader, not an apostle, not a writer of scripture, just a nobody. But Christ saw what he could be given that heart of genuine faith if he were developed, if he grew. And so vision and leaders helps them see people and, and encourage people for where they can go, what they could be if they would grow in Christ, if they would see Christ. It's how you move people in growth, by helping them see where they can go. Vision is also required to develop ministries to just serve the Lord and serve others. You know, some people look at a church, even like ours, a little tiny church. You see a blank space and nothing more. You know, you see what's missing. Here's everything that's missing from this church. Here's everything that's missing from this ministry. And that's it. And if you have no vision, well, nothing will ever be there. It will just continue to be nothing. You'll just have a list of what's missing, what's lacking. But when someone with vision comes along who sees the blank space, and he or she sees what's missing, but then also sees, you know, what could be there, well, then you're onto something. You now have a chance to, to do something here. Ask questions like, how could the Lord be served in this area? How could the children's ministry be made better to better serve the kids? How could God's people be edified in this area? The leader has to be able to formulate a, a vision for spiritual growth. See the needs and see how to get there. It makes me think of TMAI, for example, the Master's Academy International, uh, started by Grace Community Church, Grace to You. You guys, I trust, know the basic model of it. It's an organization that seeks to train up other leaders, pastors in other countries to shepherd their own people. So instead of just sending a bunch of white missionaries overseas to all these countries to be pastors, let's train up the native people to be their own pastors. And so how did that begin? 30 years ago, it didn't exist. Just what was missing? There's not a lot of training going on in these other countries. We've got great seminaries in America, but there's nothing overseas. Someone had a vision. Someone said, and it's not mystical. It's like, what could be there? Have a need. We need to train up people in Honduras. How do we do that? What if we kind of start a seminary in Honduras? Maybe we send some people, but over time it becomes self-sustaining. They train up Hondurans and they just send them back to their own country. Started with a vision and, and something. And today there's 20 plus of these throughout the world doing a lot of work of training up a generation of preachers in many countries. Started with vision. And it can go far from there. Vision and leadership is also critical on helping people deal with adversity. Life is full of challenges and difficulties. And if that's all you focus on, just the mess of life, 
can seem overwhelming. But the man or woman of vision, the leader of vision, he will see circumstances with spiritual insight. He, he will see things as they are, but not only as they are, where they could go, where they need to go. And he's going to remember God, remember God's word, God's will, God's promises. And he's going to overcome adversity based on that, based on the unseen. Isn't that just another word for vision? Just moving, acting, trusting God based on the unseen. Makes me think of Numbers 12. After the Exodus, they come to the promised land. They send out the 12 spies to spy out the land and get bring back a report. And so they go, they come back. And uh, 10 of the 12 bring a negative report. What did they see in the promised land? Giants. The land is filled with giants, fortified cities. There's no way we're going to conquer the, these people. They're too numerous. And they're, all, they're pessimistic. All they could see was what was there. We, they, we see the challenge. We see the adversity. We see the difficulty. And nothing else, it appears insurmountable. And so give up. That's leaders without vision. And it's too bad that the people listened to those 10 leaders who spoke louder than the others. And great disaster resulted, as you know. If only the people had the wisdom to listen to Caleb and Joshua, who they saw the same thing, right? That They were all looking at the same promised land. They saw the mighty men. They saw the same fortified cities. But they led based on the unseen. They were men, you could say, of vision. They, they said, yeah, the, this is what it looks like right now. But guys, let's not remember, let's not forget God has promised this. He's going to fight for us. He's going to empower us. may not look, look that way not, right now. We might not look like a mighty army right now, but just here's what God has promised. They gave a vision, and again, it's tragic that people didn't listen, but that is leadership vision where you lead people based on God's unseen promises. It's so needed for times of hardship. It's been said that management executes vision, but leadership provides vision. Or that management is about doing things right. Leadership leadership is about doing the right things. Also, management is efficiency in climbing the ladder of success. Leadership determines whether the ladder is leaning on the right wall. This is uh, the higher level of leadership, the, the one who has vision to know uh, what are we doing, are we doing the right things, where do we need to go, and so forth. And the church doesn't just need managers, but leaders, and that's going to take a, a case of vision, spiritual insight, based on God's word, his will, his character, his promises. Yeah, Mason? Gives vision. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the next. So marked by vision. These are going to be related. The, sec- the next one here, I guess, is number seven. Marked by decision. Marked by decision. In this sense, it's not enough just to have spiritual vision of where the church needs to go, where a ministry needs to go, where someone in your small group needs to go, how they need to grow. You need to be able to see someone and see, I, I see where this person needs to go in their spiritual walk. But that's not enough. You have to act on it. You have to do something now to implement the vision. The leader must discern when it's time to act. It's part of the leadership or the wisdom of leadership. 
And part of the commitment of leadership, knowing when to act and then having the resolve to, to act, to act decisively, make decision. In Luke 9.62, for example, Jesus said, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He said this in the context of calling his disciples to follow him. All Christians, all people who follow Jesus need to commit to follow him, to make a decision, a decisive commitment. I'm going to follow Christ. And what he's teaching here is the one who turns back, the one who looks back, meaning they look back longingly at things behind them, at their former life and old ways. The one who doubts their commitment to Christ and vacillates, he says, they're not fit to follow me. That to follow Jesus needs commitment, decision, 100%. And that's true for all believers. And so how much more true is that going to be for leaders then? That they, they cannot be those who vacillate in their commitment to Christ. He or she needs to be characterized by decision, which is the courage to act. And so that starts first and foremost with their commitment to Christ. Their, so to speak, decision to follow Christ. Leaders have to be unwavering in that commitment to Christ. And that commitment then trickles down to all of their decisions, all of their leadership. In the same way they decisively followed Christ and have not turned back on that commitment, they must make other decisions. And so we're talking about decisiveness and leadership here, a, a commitment. I guess you could say a, a, the buck stops here mentality, a leader who, who leads, who actually leads. This is not talking about a, a place of rash, irrational, thick-headed leadership who confuses decisiveness with bold yet irrational decisions. Not what we're talking about. But the biblical leader is one who can make, look, you're, you are called on to make decisions. That's just part of leadership. And that's, that's in a way what separates elders. Not that that's all they do, but a lot of what they do is making some key and critical decisions for the church. Many of which have huge implications. It's going to steer the ship in different directions. That's leadership is going to, you're going to be faced with decision. If you don't like that, be a deacon. Right? That's the difference. But the biblical leader is able to make clear, decisive, wise decisions because his leadership is based on biblical truth and principles. The leader knows per his spiritual vision what he needs to do. God's word and God's promises tell him where he needs to go. He knows how to take them there. And then when the time is right and the cost is counted, well, he's going to decisively act come what may. You know, whatever the consequences, just a man or a woman of principle and then can act. And I'll tell you this, just by, by the negative illustration, it's so much easier not to act. In leadership, it's so much easier just to abstain, just not make any decision, not, not do anything, not say anything, not decide anything. Many times, weak leaders will simply fail to act because they're scared. They lack the courage to lead. And to make the right decisions, even though it's the right thing to do. This is the decision that needs to be made, that must be made. But they fear backlash. They fear persecution. They fear what others will think. They fear consequences. And so theirs is a passive leadership that's just ignoring issues for as long as possible. Until eventually, it's, it's too late actually, and you have a real explosion on your hand. That's not 
biblical leadership. Now, I've known of pastors or churches, rather, for example, who have just simply refused to lead their church through the gay marriage issue, for example. Can it really be ignored in this age for a church leadership team to, to say, let's just not even, let's just ignore it. Let's not even talk about it. That's not good. I mean, churches, they, they have a belief. They know what the Bible says. They know scripture does not support gay marriage. They refuse to say anything, though. They know it's going to be a really pressing issue among their people. But, you know, they just refuse to lead. Even though it's according to the truth, because, you know, they fear backlash, they fear persecution, they fear offending people, they fear people leaving their church. I would say that's not leadership at all. That's a leadership vacuum. And that's not decision. The biblical leader needs to be driven by biblical principles, which will lead him to act at the right time without fear, without turning back. This is what we mean by just leadership decision, marked by decision. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book on spiritual leadership, tells the story of a young man in the Coast Guard, kind of a new recruit, and they receive a call for an urgent rescue in the middle of a, a huge storm, the wind, the waves. It's an intense storm. And they get the call, and the young man, in the midst of the storm, cries out to the captain in fear. He says, if we go out, we will never come back. That's how bad the storm is, and that's how scared he is. And the captain says back to him, we don't have to come back, but we must go out. That's decision. That's leadership. That's the leaders. I, I know what must be done. What's the right thing to do? And it's time to act. We're going to do it. Come what may, whatever the consequences, whatever the fears, that's leadership decision. It comes from knowing the right thing to do, the right time to do it. It's basically the courage and the conviction to lead put together. The courage and the conviction to lead and it, that's most needed in the church. We need leaders who will lead, will actually lead. And so we'll, we'll call that vision. Thankfully, in leadership, you don't have to face every challenge alone or do everything alone. This can lead into a, an eighth mark here, marked by delegation. Marked by delegation. You see how these kind of tie together. And leaders must lead and make decisions to take God's people where they need to go. But thankfully, that doesn't mean they have to do everything by themselves. And a part of leadership, an important part of leadership is delegation. The skill of delegation is an important quality in leadership. Delegation can be referred to the art of enlisting others in the church to help execute a vision so you imagine a ministry, ministry that needs to be developed in the church. It might start with a leader who gathers a, a spiritual vision. You know, here's where children's ministry needs to go in the next year. He, he sees where it's at. He sees the limitations, the lacking, but here's where it needs to go based on God's word, principles, the truth, conviction, the people he has, the personalities. I see where it's at. I see where it needs to go. So it starts with that vision. It comes time to make decision, like everything's in place. It's time to act. We need to change now. Change can be scary for little local churches, but it's time to make some changes. We need to do some things. It's time to implement the vision, but for that, he, he cannot do that alone. He can't actually bring this vision to life by himself. 
nor is he called to. Leadership is not about just doing things alone out in front of everybody, but side by side, where you're equipping the saints to to work just right alongside you to bring about this vision, to bring about the mission of the church, making disciples, presenting others complete in Christ, building up the body, and so forth. You all know well by now, we've studied it a few times in this leadership series, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. God gave some as pastors and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So you know, we've said it many times, he didn't give pastors and teachers to do all the work of service. He gave them in large part to equip the body of Christ to do the work of service. We're all to do this together. Some in the church, uh, some in the church believe ministry is for professionals only. Now, there's a professional class of service providers and everyone else, we're, we're service recipients. We're spectators. And you know, there are some churches that truly function like that. Perhaps you know some or came from some. They become extremely top-heavy with paid staff. Just pay guys to do everything. Pay that pastor, pay that person, pay that secretary. Just very top-heavy church with paid staff. They do all the ministry. It's what we're paying them for, right? And everyone else treats the church like a country club. We pay our dues. Those people do all the work so that we don't have to. That's why we pay our dues. That's not the the picture of the church. That's not the, the model of the church or leadership. And that creates a very unbalanced, unhealthy, and self-centered church that can quickly topple over. It's so top-heavy. The opposite is a church that takes seriously delegation through the equipping of the saints for the work of service. We're not just saying, hey, you do that over there and leave me alone. But, you know, you're spending time to equip and train and then just unleash people. And when you do that, you see a real multiplication of ministry where countless more people are using their spiritual gifts to build up the body of of Christ. It goes without saying, but no one leader has all the gifts. I don't have all the gifts. No one of you has all the gifts necessary for the building up of the body of Christ. Not even close. And so if you have a leader who tries tries to do everything himself, it's going to be shortchanging the church and really harming the church. No one has all the gifts. We need every member, great and small, it doesn't matter, every member working together, serving as God has called and equipped them uh, for the building up the body in love. So the leader must be more like that a coach, getting everyone, in a sense, to buy into the vision, which is just the mission of the church, to present every man complete in Christ, to make disciples of all the nations, all that we've studied, Get them to to buy into the vision and then equip them, train them, spend time with them, disciple them, and then coordinate them like that coach to to serve as a team, as a unified team, just all working together. And you see churches who who do this. It takes time, takes a lot of time to get there, but you see churches that kind of get there and it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a strong, healthy, mature, vibrant church that really impacts people, their community, the lost, the world around them. You know, it does make me think of Grace Community Church down in the Los Angeles area. We go to Shepherd's Conference every year with thousands of attendees. And the only way it really happens and 
and goes off so well as, uh, I forget the numbers, but I think it's 500 plus, if you guys remember. 700, 800, 900, can I get 1,000? <laughs> just say a lot, a lot of people, hundreds of people, they're just volunteers in the church. They're taking time off work. They're taking vacation days, three vacation days just to serve coffee, boiled eggs. Maybe you're the donut guy. It's not a, that's not, that's not too sacrificial to be the donut guy, but you know, they're, they're taking vacation time just to serve the church, serve these strangers, these other pastors and elders from all around the country, but they're delighted to do so. That that's a, a mark of a healthy church, and it came from leaders who trained and trained and delegated and equipped over and over again. It's a wonderful thing. Christ himself modeled this quality of delegation in leadership. You know, of course, he surrounded himself with the 12 disciples, and then around them, the 70. Don't forget the 70. They were disciples as well, kind of a second tier in a way. But he trained them as well, and he sent them all out to preach, the 12 and then later the 70 they could cover more ground than him by himself, in a sense, right? And the bigger picture, we know Christ is the head of the church, and he will build his church. It's his job, and his, the, uh, he will get the glory for it. But we also know that Christ is sovereignly deemed to use means to build his church, and that's us. Christ came with a vision, in a manner of speaking. He had a, a vision per the Father's will, of a body, a bride, a group of people who would be united to him, who would be his inheritance. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, not just the Jews. It a vision of people from every nation who would be his and would worship him and the Father. Christ came with that vision. He came to turn that vision into reality. He was going to do the, the work of redeeming this people, but he entrusts the implementation of gathering these people to us, to, to those, you know, to the apostles and then the people after them, the people after them, just that chain of discipleship and to make the vision happen. And so it goes for us. We are now in that chain and we are called to, you know, we're, we're all just executing his vision. None, nothing's original here. We're all just trying to contribute to that vision, the mission of the church that people from every tribe and tongue would come to know Christ and worship him and, and build that body up in love. That's all we're doing here. And so delegation is going to be essential for that. It's hard work, though. Delegation, it's, it takes a lot of time and a lot of work, which is why many leaders can put it off or put it on the back burner. You know, if you want other, others to do things the right way, you want them to do, things, uh, to do things the way you would do it, that's going to take some time. Time, hard work, a lot of training are required. You're going to have to make quite a time and energy investment in people to really train them up to do things right. Even in your, maybe you can think of yourself or in a secular environment or your work environment, maybe you're an employer or a manager, and perhaps you've fallen into the trap where you've got an employee and you want them to do this task, but the time it's going to take just to show him or her how to do it, it's like, oh, it's not worth it. I, I can just do this so much faster myself. I can do it faster. I can do it better. I can do it more efficiently. And so you continually put off training that person to do that thing. And look, in the short run, it makes perfect sense. In the long run, it makes zero sense. 
You are saving yourself no time, no money, no energy. You are wasting time, money, and energy. It's just that you're playing the short game. And if you want to be in employment for a long time, play the long game. You've got to, you've got to spend that time. Take that extra time. Just train that person. It might take years. It took Jesus three years for 12 disciples, but it was worth it. And so spend the time. Train that person and uh, you'll see the multiplication of labor in the church, multiplication of ministry. It's going to pay dividends. It's going to save time. But you have to get over that just really heavy initial investment. Same thing in the church. And the lie we buy, myself included, is that you know, we're too busy to delegate and to effectively train up others. When in reality, we're too busy not to do it. We must we have to do this. You know, remember, we're talking about leadership qualities here. So you can, you can still be a leader, in a sense, without doing these things. But these are marks that make for effective leaders. And this is big. You want to be an effective leader. If you fail to delegate, you're going to be ineffective, and you might outright burn out. Just, just burn out of ministry, like the, the engine that's working too hard with no rest, no break. It's not good. So, happened to Moses in Exodus 18. You recall, we've used this example before as well. Moses, right after the Exodus, he was the sole mediator for God's people and their, their judge, their actual judge and jury. It was just, just one guy, Moses. And so, they were bringing to him this camp of two million plus people, bringing all their disputes to one guy. Morning to evening, he was just Rectifying disputes, hearing people, making judgments, and burning out. And Jethro, his father-in-law, sees him and, and counsels him and says this, Exodus 18, verse 17 and following. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you, and you cannot do it alone. And so later he said, you shall select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over the people as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and so forth. He goes on. It's like the the classic example of delegation in scripture. And it's, it's just pure biblical wisdom. Jethro was right. He had it right. And Moses implemented this vision, and the people, at least in the sense of being, uh, having internal judgment and justice, flourished. It's what they needed to do for Moses' sake and the people's sake. And so in all the art and the skill of effectively training up others and a delegating ministry, it's, it's vital if you're going to be a long-lasting leader. And I would say in a sense, you know you've succeeded in the art of delegation, when you've even trained up your own replacement. You know, some leaders might say are insecure or perhaps prideful, and they want everyone else to be dependent on them. So they're always useful. They'll always have a job. You can't get rid of me because if I leave, this place is falling apart. And so they refuse to share the ministry with others. They refuse to train or share the load and so forth. The thing is, though, if they were to die or be taken out, the, the, the house of cards would collapse, the ministry would collapse. I've seen that happen to churches. The top guy, he's like the CEO, and he goes down in like 
there's, there's no infrastructure left and it just kind of falls apart. But instead, the godly leader is humble enough to know that the work of the ministry, it's not about him, it's not about his ego. And so he should diligently seek to train up others around him to the degree that even if he died, things would carry on the next day just fine without him. You know, other people would step up, they would take over. That takes time, takes a while to get to that point, but that's just, that's how you know you've arrived in the, the art of delegation. Nonetheless, an important quality for, for leaders. It takes time, it takes effort, but spend the time and effort and uh, you'll see the church flourish. Now, to delegate in ministry, to equip the saints, you need to find the right people, committed people, in a sense, like Jethro told Moses. You need to find the right guys, men who fear God, hate dishonest gain, right? Those who are committed, people who are willing to follow you, who, who buy into the vision of the mission of the church and ministry. And so for this, you're going to need the next quality. So another little tie-in here in a sense. Number nine, marked by inspiration. Marked by inspiration. This leadership quality, not talking about the ability to write inspired scripture. Inspiration here, I mean just the ability to inspire people, to motivate people, to get people to move. In a way, this is perhaps an obvious quality of a leader. I remember one of my seminary professors would say, you know, if people don't follow you, are you really a leader? These lot of guys call themselves leaders, but there's nobody following them. So are you really a leader if nobody's following you? If you can't motivate or inspire people to follow you in, in a ministry, you're not really a leader. Your leadership is the business of moving people, getting them to act, to serve, to use their spiritual gifts. Our goal here is to glorify God by building up the body of Christ, presenting everyone complete in Christ. We know that work can't be done alone, requires the functioning of every member. So a large part of the job of leaders is to equip people. That includes, you know, moving people, motivating people that they, you can't just sit in that pew forever. If this local church is to be built up in love and be edified, to be made more like Christ, scripture says like we all have to be doing something. We all have to be serving and acting and working and laboring with our gifts People don't naturally want to do that. The flesh is weak. We're beset with weaknesses. The church needs leaders, the coach, who can communicate the vision and just infect people with a passion for the work of the ministry to inspire them to say, you know what, it is time. I'm going to get up off the pew and actually serve and start doing something. Leaders must inspire not advocating a type of sensationalism here or like an emotional manipulation. How does the biblical leader motivate and inspire? I would say simply by just appealing to the truth of Scripture. Because ultimately, we trust the Holy Spirit to convict people and to move people and to get them going, to get them serving. The Spirit must convict them and move them to action. But we know the Spirit does so through the truth of God's Word being brought to bear on someone's heart. And so the leader is the one who's not relying on gimmicks or pep talks per se, but the, the word, the word 
taught, preached, counseled, reminded. Just apply the word to the heart of the sheep and, and let that cut them open, produce conviction, and move them. That's how we inspire. That's how we motivate. We call on the promises of God, the directions of God in Scripture. And God's true people, they're going to respond. They're going to move. Makes me think of Nehemiah as an example. You know the story, Israel exiled, they come back, they return from exile. Jerusalem was wiped out, the temple is destroyed. So the first return, they rebuild the temple, but it's, it's not even close to the original temple. Years later, there's another return, and then a third return. Jerusalem, they're slowly rebuilding, but the city had no walls, vulnerable, and enemies were multiplying again. And so there was a need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah comes back in the third return. He's the governor, and he's going to lead the people. This was a monumental task with a lot of hardship to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and do it fast. And it was not easy because the the Samaritans and others living in the land, they were starting to turn on these Jews who had returned and persecute them, and they threatened to kill them. Like, if you you do this, if you try and rebuild these walls, we're just going to attack and kill you all. And so it says in Nehemiah 4, 5, they demoralized the builders. All the guys that Nehemiah had recruited to do this work, you know, rebuild the wall, they were just scared, demoralized. And so Nehemiah had to lead. He had to motivate and inspire and lead the people. He started with prayer and just appealing to God for his strength, for the people's strength. This was a spiritual motivation. He showed courage. And then he reminded the people of their task. He reminded them of the greatness of their God. He reminded them of their need to trust God. He did all this by personal example as well. He was a man of decision, and so it was a time to act. So he inspired the people, and then he emboldened them by putting a sword in their hands. They had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, and all the workers became warriors. Nehemiah was down there with them, so he was a man of action. He's a leader who really believed his message, and he was going to be out there trusting God to protect them while they rebuilt this wall. And that just gave everyone else courage. And they were inspired. And they they built that wall, I guess you could say in record time. I forget, it was like, what, 44 days or something like that. But they they built that wall and God preserved them. The people were willing to follow him, even at a cost. And such inspirational leadership, you could say, it's it's all the more more necessary when the people are faced with adversity and with challenge. We're of flesh and we're beset with many weaknesses And I think people are just naturally prone to run from trouble. We don't want any part of it. We we don't want to face it. We don't want to fight through it. Most would rather just surrender, give up, give in. It's too much work. It's too, too scary. But a strong leader can really help people do what is right. Do the right thing, even in the face of adversity, even if there's great cost involved. That goes for Nehemiah. Makes me also think of a classic World War II example, Winston Churchill, the greatest leader of that uh, generation. Germany declared war on the British, and pretty soon, they brought England to its knees. All the aerial bombings were so demoralizing to the people. And they were ready to give up pretty quick and raise the white flag if it weren't for the leadership of Churchill. 
he clearly communicated the urgency of this war and their need to never surrender. They, they just could not bow the knee to fascism and they had to stand up to tyranny. And if not them, who? There's no one left. The Americans weren't in the war at this point, so it was up to them. And the people really derived courage from him. There was still going to be a great cost. The loss of life would still be high. The bombings weren't stopped. They were going to continue. But through his strength, his resolve, his leadership, he led the people to be willing to just, we're going to, we're going to fight and really buy in to the war and, and do this thing, even at cost. And it, so much of it came from him. If you just imagine if, if he went away and just started to hide, if Churchill said, said you know, I'm, I'm scared, let's give up, or if he showed any sign of weakness, it's over. You know, they would have surrendered. They would have all, you know, their hearts would have melted. There would be no fight in them. But they derive courage from his leadership. You know, today in the church, we're not calling people to sacrifice their lives like in World War II. But we are calling people to give things up. Calling on people to give up their time, their energy, sometimes even their money. Just to sacrifice. Sacrifice is still required. If people are to engage in the mission of the church. And this can be more than than many American Christians are willing to do coming from such a self-centered culture. And so naturally on their own, people don't seem too ready to sacrifice a whole lot just to serve others, to serve in the local church. It's It's not in their nature, so to speak. But leaders of the church, especially in America, I would say need to be, you know, especially gifted to, to inspire, to motivate, using God's word to get God's people to, to do. Just get up, do what it says. Equip the saints for the work of service. Okay, now do the work of service. There has to be a real motivation factor there. That's part of leadership. You know, briefly now, how do you do that? How do you motivate and inspire? I would include one personal example. People won't follow where you're not willing to go yourself. I knew a while ago, uh, the guy before me actually is a college pastor, and he came to the end of his time. He was going to take a church in Kansas. He started to kind of mentally check out of his role as college pastor. And so he would teach the Bible study, and then he would leave like real fast after. Normally, we would stay and hang out for a long time, but he would just kind of split real fast And that's not really inspiring others to stick around. It's kind of a demoralizing attitude where like, you know, the pastor, I guess he's got better things to do than, you know, hang out with the college students and just, you know, do ministry. You just got to start with you. It's got to start with your personal example. People won't follow where you're not willing to go. I would add to this relatedly personal passion. If you're going to motivate, you've got to display your own passion and excitement for the ministry. If you don't believe your own vision for the ministry, no one else is going to believe it. You have to really believe. You see the ministry direction. You see where it needs to go. Go after it. I've always found you know, excitement for the things of the Lord is contagious. If you're on fire for the ministry or for a work that needs to be done, that's going to infect others. You know, the thing about fire is that it spreads. It's what it does. So if let your fire get close to people and then just watch it spread. That's, that's how it works. And then add to this personal communication. 
And people can't follow blindly if they are going to be inspired to sacrifice and to serve. They need to share your vision. They need to see what you're seeing. They need to see what needs to change, what needs to grow, where things need to go. And they need to believe it. And for that to happen, you've got to clearly communicate that vision. Where we need to go, what needs to change, what things will be like when we get there, and so forth. They need to come to have just as much passion for the work of the ministry as you do. And so you have to clearly communicate all that's involved. In inspiration, it's the art of getting people to follow you, you might say. And it's so critical for all leadership and certainly for biblical leadership. Well, we'll finish, we'll do one more here. One more essential leadership quality. You've heard me use this word throughout and it's a good way to end. Marked by courage. Marked by courage, number 10. Encourage is one of those big, key, in a way, intangible leadership qualities. You can be morally qualified to lead. But that doesn't necessarily come with something like courage. Courage can be thought of, that, uh, of as that quality of mind that enables people to face great fear and danger and, and challenges without turning back. Courage does not mean you're never afraid or you don't have these fears, or at least temptation to fear, just means you're not going to let that stop you. You will do what is right in spite of the fear. You will overcome and still do what is right, do what is called uh, on to do. That's courage. Courage is a quality that all Christians need in their daily lives. The Lord himself calls us not to fear man, but to fear the Lord. We live in a world where Christ's promise is going to hate us. The world will hate us. They'll persecute us. But then he says, don't fear though. That's, that's, you know, it seems opposite. You, you're telling us they're going to hate us, but then they, you say, don't fear. Well, that's, that's how it is though, because in reality, he teaches there's nothing man can do to us. And instead of fearing man, how about you just fear God more? Fear the Lord, which also goes to say, you know, trust the Lord. He cares for you. You're his child now. You're safe in his sovereign hands. So just fear God, trust God, not the world. He's left us, left us behind in a hostile world to do this mission. And so there are going to be a lot of hardships and difficulties. And if you're governed by fear, you're going to compromise. You are not going to do the right thing. And But the one who fears God more will still do what is right, even in the face of fear, and that's courage. This quality, as you can imagine, so it's for every believer needs this. Every one of you needs courage in the faith. You can imagine how it's all the more essential for leaders. You know, leaders, by the nature of leadership, they face more fears, more dangers, more challenges. Those at the top, so to speak, always have a bigger target painted on their back. They're going to face more of the slander, more of the hatred, an intensified persecution from the world. That's just part of leadership, right? And so they must respond even more so with strength and courage for their own sake and definitely for the sake of all those who follow them because nothing melts the heart of the people like a leader who shrinks back in fear. 
makes me think of Joshua 1. It's why God himself, in commissioning Joshua to lead the people, I think three times in Joshua 1, in God's commission, he says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Moses has died. Joshua gets the mantle. His mission is to lead the people to conquer the promised land. And there's going to be plenty of fear involved. Because those fortified cities and giants never left. They're still there. It's just now it's time to invade. It's going to be marked by fear. But God tells Joshua as the leader, be strong and be courageous. Doesn't mean the fear goes away per se, but as he fears God more and trusts God more, God will fight for them and take care of them. You know, if Joshua were to just ball up in a corner as they got to Jericho and just, you know, run away, everyone else would, their strength would, would flee and uh, nothing would happen. The people would, would likewise run away. But oftentimes all it takes is one man of God leading with strength and courage to make people follow him to the ends of the earth. And by God's grace and enabling, that's what Joshua did. In the work of the ministry, high level, mid-level, low level, all of it comes with challenges and adversity. You know, Paul reflected this in 2 Corinthians 7, 5. He said to them, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. His ministry is just full of hardship. But he also knew, 2 Timothy 1, 7, that God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and discipline. You know, like John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You know, this courage that's so needed for leadership doesn't come from you. We're not talking about some like worldly sense of inner fortitude. This courage doesn't come from muscles. doesn't come from a machoism, if that's a word. It comes from the Lord. It comes from trusting the Lord and relying on his might, his strength, like Joshua He's going to fight these battles. I just have to trust him, do what is right. And the Spirit then will give you the courage you need. You, of course, remember the disciples after the crucifixion, before the resurrection, what are they doing? In John 20, 19, they're up in that same upper room, but the doors are shut, it says, for fear of the Jews. They're just, they're scared. They're afraid. And so they're locked away. They're hiding. But that, that's not going to build the church. You're not going to make disciples of all the nations by hiding in an upper room. That's not going to work for the mission here. Christ had trained them for, to, to take over his vision and to make disciples. And fear, it can't happen. They need courage to open the doors and leave. Even if it costs them their lives, they need the courage to do that. They didn't have that courage. But of course, things would change as the Spirit came And the Spirit emboldened them. And we see this transformation of all the disciples from Acts 2 to Acts 3 to Acts 4. Where they're now, I wouldn't say the fear goes away, but they fear the Lord. And they're given the strength of the Lord. And so by Acts 4, I mean, they're they're not ready to preach Jesus, to suffer for Jesus, be arrested for Jesus, and to die for Jesus. And that's not their own strength. That's just the Lord strengthening them. And so they're even counting a joy 
and rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. That's, that's courage. It comes from the Lord, and that's the type of leadership that God can use. He can really use to, to move things, to move people, to build his church. He uses us. He's going to use men and women with courage. It's the type of courage and conviction that God uses to uh, build his church. So trust God, acknowledge God, depend on God, and he'll give you the strength you need to do what you got to do. You pray like Nehemiah, you pray and God will answer and then go forth boldly. Uh, Others will follow. All of these qualities, all 10 we've looked at, none of them come from ourselves. They all come from God's grace, God's own equipping and his strengthening of us. So you just continue to trust him, rely on him, pray for strength and courage, and he will build you up. He is faithful to build you up and that you might build up others also in leadership in the church. All right, well, we finished right on time. It's kind of rare, but let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for for the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what gives us the courage and the conviction we need to, to lead. Christ the Lord came to earth with a mission to build a church, to build a body of people who were redeemed and who were knit together in love and who served the Lord and, and fellowship together. He died on the cross to make that happen, to, to purchase his people. Then he entrusted to his disciples and all thereafter just the implementation to carry out this vision. And that's where we're at, Lord. We're a couple thousand years later, but here we are. You've given us the same mission to catch on to that same vision to build this church. It's your your sovereign work, but you're going to use us to do it, Lord. We need all these qualities that we've been studying. All of us who, who lead in whatever capacity, we need these, Lord. And so I pray you, as a study instructs us, now you would equip us. And you would build these characteristics in our lives, in our leadership. We all have a long way to go. None of us have arrived in in any of these qualities, Lord. But you're faithful. Just build us up. Equip and train us that this local church might grow and be built up in love. And and be matured and impact the lost around us. That that is our mission. And and we want to have the same passion for that mission as Christ did. The same resolve. The same strength and courage. So be with us, and may we just continue seeking you in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.